0: This episode is brought to you by Flux Protocol. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal, investment, tax, financial, or other advice. For our full terms and conditions, please visit fluxprotocol.org. Welcome to Bear Builders, a conversation series brought to you by Flux Protocol. My name is Sanya, and I'll be your host. What exactly is Bear Builders? When a bull market ends and a bear takes over, the world of decentralized finance goes from a place of opportunity and optimism to a Hunger Games, where the strongest, most capable tend to survive. Projects with little runway are likely to fall, and projects we once deemed successful may not be as reliable as we thought they were. But some will make it through the winter. Some will turn to bear building to survive. These are the individuals Flux's Bear Builders series will focus on, We will highlight people in the space and what they're doing to make it through this bear. We'll share alpha on how teams building in this market can improve the way they run operations, come up with a seriously awesome battle plan, and create a product with real life value. We'll also share insights into how the space is going to evolve and where we are headed. But more importantly, bear builders will focus on bringing people and projects' origin stories to light. We want to share the inspirations struggles, challenges, and setbacks builders have been through while working in this industry? What kept them going through the hard times? Where do they see this industry headed? How do we ensure we survive despair? Today's episode features Doug from Crocswap. We're super excited to have you here today. We also have Flux co-founder Jasper here. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing?
1: Great. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Amazing. Okay, so before we begin, Doug, could you give us a breakdown on CrocSwap? What is the problem that you're trying to solve and how are you doing so?
1: Sure. So yeah, basically CrocSwap is a concentrated liquidity uh, DEX or, or AMM, uh, however you want to think about it. Um, it's Ethereum-based, Ethereum EVM-based. Um, we are... Pretty similar to the the uni V 3 model. So uh, what I kind of think of us is like the next generation of AMMs, where it's like previous generation of AMMs. Uh, you kind of had a more simple model for liquidity where uh, you kind of, everyone just puts in the same amount of liquidity, um, not necessarily capital efficient, the kind of constant product X, Y, Y, K model. And then, uh, but, but kind of contrasting with that, we're a concentrated liquidity DEX, um, basically meaning That it now becomes possible to put in liquidity uh, only covering certain price ranges, which becomes a lot more capital uh, efficient and starts behaving a lot more like uh, the traditional markets you'd see outside of DeFi.
0: So that was a lot. (laughs) And and I will admit, I will admit, I don't I think I'm still a little bit confused by how exactly market makers work. And I'm sure that there are a few of our listeners that might not be fully familiar with them as well so could you help me understand what exactly are they and why do we need them and then I'll have a bunch of more questions for you to, for you to answer
1: sure so so the core idea of an automated market maker is that we, we go in as liquidity providers so there's a pool of liquidity and, and the basic idea is um, we want to create you know just some standing facility where people can let's just say convert ethereum to USDC so two very very well traded tokens and we just need a simple and fast way for people to trade one for the other. So, so the core idea of Automated Market Makers is that let's take uh, let's take a million dollars of Ethereum and let's take a million dollars worth of USDC and let's just put it in a pool together. And okay, now it's just sitting in a pool. Uh, it it kind of rests there. It's, it's providing liquidity. And if you want to come in and buy, buy it, you go to the pool and you say, hey, I would like to, uh, you know, go, I, I would like to buy Ethereum. I have some USDC, so I'm going to deposit some USDC into the pool. And then in turn, I get to take out about an equal amount of Ethereum from the pool. Um, so it's just very simple. You put in X and then you get out an equal amount of Y and it's what we call a swap. So there's no one who has to sit there. It's a, it's a relatively simple calculation that can be done by, by a smart, smart contract. And then kind of the, the nice thing about that is that, uh, as you say, put more USDC in and then take. ETH out, right, the pool is always trying to keep the value of those two things in balance. The pool always wants 50-50 amount in terms of value. So what what the pool does in that case is that it adjusts the price to bring those two back back in line. So so the really nice part about that is you can go in and then swap and basically take out an equal amount unless you're doing a very large swap, you pretty much get the correct value. But when you add up all those actions, it keeps the pool's value In line, So it's what we want in a market, right? It's always balancing supply and demand in in a simple way. Um, Why why we need that and why like that exists in DeFi and that hasn't existed in traditional finance is it is uh, in on the blockchain. It's uh, the environment is very constrained, right? We can't run complex programs. We can't iterate over a lot of data the same way that we could with a server in a data center. So traditionally, uh, traditional markets have always used or have typically used something like a limit order book. And that works a lot different where instead of a pool of liquidity, everyone's putting in their orders. Okay, I want to buy at a $100. Okay, I want to sell at $101. I want to buy uh, more at $99, right? And then we each have our orders and our orders match and cross. And that's kind of what keeps the market in line. That That just doesn't work in a blockchain context because the problem is uh there's just way more computation to do right every individual order has to be tracked and and the key thing that makes an amm work is that there's just one common pool of liquidity and it and it auto adjusts so uh it's just a lot more efficient in that context but but the nice property that comes out of that is that efficiency also is like what creates the, the democratic uh nature of it right now instead of having a bunch of market makers or hfts who are very sophisticated and are always adjusting their quotes and high high speed computers everyone kind of gets that feature just by going into the pool and, and participating together
0: so how how big of a price change are we talking are those price changes like huge typically
1: typically they're not huge per swap they could be obviously if like there's a big if there's news or you know something big happens uh you know crisis couldn't move a lot but t- typically what you would see in a given swap in in a fairly liquid pool is under one half of a percent so uh, it would be unusual for any given swap to really move the price more than more than a percent up or down one way or or another it does start getting a little thornier when you go above that with uh, MeV type attacks which is like a whole separate a whole separate issue.
0: So then what exactly is concentrated liquidity? Is it providing liquidity in a smaller range? And how does it make AMMs more efficient?
1: That's a, that's a great, great question. So what, what concentrated liquidity is basically doing is still taking that core AMM design. Um, let's say we have equal amounts on each side, but what it's saying is instead of actually having a million dollars on each side, uh, what what we can do is just pretend that we have a million dollars on each so, so maybe we only put in a hundred thousand dollars and but we really pretend like we have a million dollars or and the other side maybe we put in fifty thousand so what we actually have to put into the pool is not actually the same thing as what the pool pretends or it acts like it that it has so so the way concentrated liquidity works is that the pool still acts like it has a million dollars worth of liquidity even though it only has a hundred thousand under the hood and now right now the, the very key thing is right you don't want Pool to go bankrupt or, or right, like lose more money than it actually has. So, so what's very important in concentrated liquidity is that you have um, price ranges. So the pool will say, you know what, I can act like I have a million dollars of liquidity and behave that way until the price goes down, say ten percent, uh, because I only have a hundred thousand in, in my reserves in, in physical reserves. So I, I can pretend like I have a million. I only have a hundred thousand. So I can keep pretending like I have a million until I reach a hundred thousand, and then I'm going to have to go uh, reevaluate and change how much I uh, I pretend like I have. So maybe after I go past that, I have a lot less, and I only pretend like I have you know, two hundred thousand or something past that. So the cool thing about concentrated liquidity is that it lets people provide a lot of liquidity um, in in specific price ranges, and, and the reason we'd want that is because. When you go to a classical AMM for Ethereum, you're providing liquidity, right? Like some of your capital is being used to provide liquidity for Ethereum at $5. Some is being used to provide liquidity for Ethereum at $5 million. Probably tomorrow, Ethereum is not going to be worth $5 or $5 million. We probably have a pretty good idea where it's going to trade. So now now you can actually just say, okay, I'm going to provide more liquidity with the same amount of capital. Um, and the trade-off is that if it does go outside of this price range, I I won't be providing liquidity anymore. The thing that really excites me about concentrated liquidity in general is that it kind of bridges this gap. And and the great thing about AMMs is, right, the ability to kind of participate and provide liquidity has always been very demographic. Um, People can go and provide liquidity to, you know, swap or curve or or whatever in in a way that uh, really an average person can't go and provide liquidity at NASDAQ for for Microsoft. so I, I think that's a very cool thing about AMMs and, and definitely a feature uh, we want to preserve. But but as well, right? Like AMMs just historically haven't been as efficient as order books or, or centralized exchanges.
0: I, I came across one of your threads recently. It wasn't that recent? I guess I was stalking you, but <laughs> I read <laughs> one of your threads about order books and AMMs. I know you you talk a lot about how you know order how AMMs are I guess better than order books. Why do you think so? Why do you think that they're the right kind of future for liquidity and trading?
1: Sure. So uh, I, th- I think that thread specifically, what, what I was talking about is I, I don't think order books are really sustainable to run uh, for on-chain markets. So they might be the right fit for off-chain markets for centralized exchanges. If I have a server and pe- people trust, I'm say FTX, right? People trust me. Uh, that I will, you know, execute fairly, uh, so that there is some built in trust and I have a server, I have a very powerful server. I can run it. I, I don't have to really wor- worry about that. But in, in an on-chain context, when we're running something on the blockchain, all uh, right, there are different, different assu- assumptions there, right? So the key thing about running anything on the blockchain, right, is that the you know, computation is, is trustless, right? So we can all look at the chain. We can all agree on it. We don't have to trust any single party to act act honestly. So the uh, the, the argument I, I was trying to make in that thread is that when you have order, and, and you can run order books on chain, you just a very, very scalable blockchains. The technology is kind of there now. So you can use like, for example, Solana runs order books because transactions on Solana are very cheap. The problem with that is that when transactions are very cheap, the chain itself is not secure over the long run. So you look at something like Solana, because transactions are so cheap, um, the total amount of fees that accumulate to the validators are only on the order of like five dollars to $10,000 a day for a $30 billion uh, chain. Over the long run, that's not a sustainable equilibrium. So either Solana is going to have to raise its fees, at which point uh, order books don't really become Sustainable, or uh, or it's going to have to abandon order books, uh, at least at least in my opinion. So, I think the key difference is that when you look at an AMM, the ratio of swaps, which, which we we'll call organic users, to liquidity provider. So, there might be the ratio of swaps to like liquidity provider operations is, is maybe. Twenty to one. So for every for every type of mint or burn, something that's adding, removing liquidity, you get about twenty swap transactions in order books. Because going back to it, uh, prices don't adjust automatically. Market makers have to constantly move around their quotes. So if you look at like traditional finance, high frequency traders will do thirty. Fifty, a hundred, sometimes even more messages for every actual trade that occurs in the theory. They're constantly putting in orders, canceling them, moving them around, um, and that's the only way really to make order books order books work. Is market makers have to be hyperactive in a way that they don't they don't have to be hyperactive on AMMs. So the problem is when you kind of skew that ratio, and market makers have to be so hyperactive, you can't really make that work in a blockchain context because. You can't charge market makers a lot. And then the blockchain itself isn't necessarily aware of, oh, hey, this is an organic user. Um, this is a market maker. Let me charge them a different gas fee in a way that FTX can give like steep discounts to market makers uh, relative to organic users.
2: What, what is your opinion on the hybrid models that are out there where you have on-chain execution with off-chain order books and matching engines? Something like a DYDX or a 0X as we've seen in the past.
1: Yeah, I, I, think that's, uh, I, I think that's a pretty interesting model. I, I think both models, right, you're making trade-offs in terms of trust, right? So DY, like like DYDX, right, is actually, um, you know, even though it's a, it's a DeFi protocol, right, there's actually a lot of trust built into the system, right? Because DYDX can't go and steal your funds, right? So the same way, FTX could go, right, someone broke bad, stole, stole all the money in FTX, they could do that. People can't steal your money in DYDX, but inside the order book itself that just runs on a server somewhere so dydx right now they might not be able to steal your funds but what they can do is basically front run your transactions um not that i'm saying they they do but i'm saying right you have to trust them not to they can front run your transactions they can uh move your transactions to the back of the queue they can uh you know put their own transactions ahead of yours they can put their friends transactions ahead of yours they can get bribed on the side to give other people priority uh, and again, not saying that they do, but I'm saying it is a very, there's a lot of trust built into the system. And, uh, you know, the only, you're not just worried about people stealing your money. These things are very, very important when markets are very liquid because, uh, you know, the ability to get to the front of the queue in order book is literally worth billions of dollars. There are multi-billion dollar firms out there that do nothing but just specialize in getting to the front of the queue on on NASDAQ or CME or, or other. Or, or FTX or, or wherever. So uh, that's that's kind of the, the problem. Anytime you're doing something off-chain, uh, right? Like anything that you're doing off-chain is building in a trust assumption um, in a way that, uh, right, sometimes it doesn't seem big, but even subtle ways to influence the market can be worth worth quite a bit and, and cost regular users a lot of money yeah. um, Over when aggregated over the volume.
2: Exactly, it's almost like they hold custody over your slippage tolerance in that way. They can give; they have the power to give you the uh, worst deal possible if they would want to. I think that it's interesting because you definitely see the difference in response to sort of like the Tornado Cash things happening, and between like the more centralized applications, DeFi applications, versus the truly decentralized ones. And it's it's interesting to see how DYDX is been pretty aggressive on the regulatory front all of a sudden from a from a technological perspective how does Crocswap differentiate from uh, uni v3 in a sense like it i read that it's more gas efficient uh is that because you guys make certain trade-offs that Uniswap did not decide to do or is it purely like solidity magic
1: um uh, it's it's a little bit of both but but there are there are definitely trade-offs so i'd say the core um the core thing that we are are doing different from a, from a high level architecture standpoint. Is that we've built the entire contract, or we've built the entire dex to run in a single smart contract? So so what that means, right, is like Uniswap uh, or or most other AMMs, you have uh, different pools, and each pool is a separate smart smart contract. Uh, so that means each pool individually manages uh, the tokens that are the liquidity, to- the tokens that provide the liquidity, um, they're they're all kind of separate. You have like routers and stuff that connect them. But for all intents and purposes, the pools are kind of independent entities and you can interact with them. What, the way we've built the contract, uh, we've built our, our DEX, is that everything runs in a single contract. So in an in Ethereum context, it's always a lot more efficient to uh, kind of just interact with the same data or with, with data inside the same contract, because there, there are costs to kind of jumping between contracts. Uh, so we still have separate pools, but the, the way we've built them is that those pools are just data structures inside this this single kind of contract superstructure. Which means, right, if you're, you're, you're trading between pools, uh, you're moving money around, especially if you're kind of a more active trader, you can kind of just avoid moving these tokens from one pool to another or even right, you can go and because of that single contract structure, you can even just have a balance directly at our exchange instead of always moving tokens from your wallet back and forth, which might be useful if you're a day trader and trading 20, 30 times a day or or whatever. So that's that's one of the um, big features that, that we've diverged on from a uh, technological perspective. Uh, another, another thing that we've tried to do from, from a tech perspective is really add more, uh, just kind of base level primitives to the protocol. So we don't just want to build this dex We want to build kind of a platform that other people can build on, on top of. So we have a lot of primitives in the protocol that aren't necessarily useful from day one, but are kind of like cool things people can build on top of what, what I'm really kind of interested in is we have uh, this concept of permission pools. So we'll always run like the permissionless pools. Like those are same as uni pools and then can kind of participate. I'll participate, But we can, uh, the, the, the protocol can create pools where the ability to interact with the pool or even like what fee, swap fee you pay on the pool, uh, all kinds of stuff can be, uh, is offloaded to a third party Oracle. And, and that Oracle, it, it can be, you know, an Oracle we've built. It can be an Oracle someone else built. It can be just an immutable, contract so this isn't just something like oh these are whitelisted pools these are like really just a core building block where you can do uh you know people can really experiment with different models so like for example maybe you want to experiment with a model where the fees are different on the weekends versus the weekdays right because maybe there's less activity on the weekends or the market conditions are different or maybe you want to experiment with a model where people can put in liquidity but if it's narrow they have to keep it in the pool for much longer than if it's If it's wide or maybe you want to experiment with a model where if participants are sending, um, you know, non-toxic flow over time, you know, they're not, they're, they're not kind of contributing to the permanent loss in in the pool as as much as other participants, maybe they get discounts over, over time. So there's just like a lot of cool things that you can build on top of that and, and something we're really excited to kind of get people out there
2: that's quite cool you could actually build a pool in which you have almost like a bnb model where if somebody holds a certain status or an nft their fee gets waived for example and yeah that's a that's
1: yeah a pretty, yeah pretty, definitely
2: pretty cool primitive or um yeah there's a there's a bunch of ways you can go with that um you could also make it that if the liquidity is low in the pool the fee gets waived or yeah that like dynamic feeing fee models it's pretty cool pretty cool primitive yeah then another way to differentiate with uni v3 potentially is uh, how they chose to license their uh, concentrated liquidity contracts uh, have you guys decided to also go for a business source license to stay competitive with uni or do you guys want to take the open source route
1: we're taking the open source route, and, and we feel pretty pretty strongly about that we think that Kind of the tech the tech we have is, is strong enough and, and we kind of have an understanding uh, that's deep enough on it that we can we can kind of build on it. And I'm sure people will fork it and and, you know, innovate on it. But, you know, oftentimes that's, that's kind of a good thing, right? People might discover new stuff, but we're, we're definitely confident uh, enough in like our team and our ability to innovate that uh, we're not we're not afraid of an open source model. Fantastic. That's, uh, that's good to hear.
0: Okay, let's shift gears. Doug, I'd love to learn more about your crypto journey. How did you get into the space? When did you get into the space? And is CrocSwap the first thing you've ever built?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm I'm a fairly late entrant, at least in a, a professional sense. So I spent most of my career as a high frequency trading uh, quant uh, up until 2020. So uh, most mostly in tradfi markets, uh, dabbled in crypto a bit, but not not in a full time or professional context in uh 2020 i basically I, I read a really cool article it was about uh about mev um about like sandwich attacks And this before flashbox or anything i thought hey that's kind of cool uh let me let me try let me try to see like at least i like, can build a prototype or or whatever so uh, i was doing that on the side i was still doing kind of the the high frequency tradfi thing doing that on the side and then uh had a lot of fun doing it, and it, it kind of took off. I, I thought, you know, maybe get a prototype and, and at least learn what's going on, get get my hands dirty. But but it kind of took off uh, fairly quickly, so shift, shifted gears and started doing uh, crypto full time as as a prop trader, as as an MEB searcher, basically in 2020. So I kind of skipped over all the centralized exchange stuff and, and went straight to straight to DeFi. So that's probably also why I'm so pro DeFi. Um, so, I, I guess you could say I don't know if that really counts as building. It was, it was a fairly complex application. Um, unfortunately, in, in prop trading, you don't really get to share what you do with anyone else. So, uh, CrocSwap is the first public thing, uh, public thing I've built. So, it, it's really exciting to actually have a product out there and get something in front of people.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. What are some of the things, the biggest lessons you've learned since you joined the crypto space? This might be a little philosophical, but I'm so curious
1: yeah that's a that's an interesting question um i i think the biggest lesson would be that you know like even outside crypto consensus is very difficult to establish and like I, I think right the core innovation of crypto is that you can bootstrap consensus or the traditional way to bootstrap consensus right like you need to get a bunch of people around and, and get them to socially agree on something right and, and crypto is really cool because now we can build consensus and software instead of in, uh, you know, just in, in social space. So I, I think when you spend time in crypto and you, and you really, especially if you spend time like in the nitty gritty, right? Like how, how do these blockchains work, right? How do they have a consensus? Like what are the failure cases? Where are the edge edge cases? Which, which I think even a lot of people in crypto don't necessarily uh, appreciate, like how much work goes into something like the merge, right? Like why, why did that take years and years, right? Because you have to be very careful about doing it. There's no one person who can roll, roll stuff back if things go wrong. So I I think there's a, there's a pretty big appreciation there. And when you spend time in crypto, you really kind of appreciate even outside it, right? Like how much, uh, how much work and like human effort it takes just to build even like things that we take for granted, right? Like I can go over to, uh, you know, fly to another country and, uh, they won't, kill me, kill me on site, right? Or use my money, they'll, they'll feed me, right? Like it's not, that's, that's like an incredible, uh, incredible achievement that, that really takes quite a bit that, that people take for granted.
0: Yeah, for sure. Crocswap is a, is a pretty crypto native project. And you mentioned that you worked in Tradify before you joined crypto, um, or even like while you were kind of starting out in crypto. How do you think crypto companies differ from traditional companies in the way that they hire, they run operations, just the way that they get things done?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that, especially when you're building a protocol, um, you know, if, if you're building a protocol, um, you have to, you're eventually going to be decentralized, right? Like, we're no question, right? We can't just have, uh, you know, our our company run the whole thing, forever. the goal is, right? Over time to exit, exit to community where where no one person, uh, you know, not not myself, not anybody else is the the dictator for life, right? So you 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 have to start planning to be decentralized, kind of from day day one, which is very different than if I'm starting, uh, you know, like a Web two company where I can be Mark Zuckerberg and I, I can be the king, you know, even when it's a trillion dollar company. So you have to think, okay, how how, how do you decentralize from day one? I think that makes a lot of decisions uh, different, especially early on because you're building a company, but it's almost like you're building a company to dissolve the company. If the company is successful, it should kind of kill the company over time or at least kill the company in like whatever form you'd recognize. So I I think the the main thing, right, is like, and that's why you see a lot of differences in, in crypto companies like, uh, we're a very distributed team. I don't think any, but no, no one person on the team is even in the same state. So we're distributed, uh, distributed first. Uh, we, we hire, you know, from, from anywhere. So it's not like we all go into an office in the same city. Um, and we're right, like pretty, pretty non-friendly. We have uh, uh, almost, let's say about half the members of the team are, are anons, which I, I think would be pretty weird in like the traditional corporate world, but you, you have to start thinking, right? Like I'm not going to always be able to run this project from one office in the same place with a bunch of people that I know and live down the street from me. So like, how can, how can I start planning and kind of setting the culture for the project on, on day one to accommodate that? That's awesome.
2: Um, another, uh, one of the selling points that Crocswap has listed is your cross train, uh, cross chain strategy. How would you define your cross-chain strategy, and how does it differentiate from something like Uniswap or SushiSwap or other AMMs out there?
1: Yeah, we, that's a that's a great question. Um, I mean, we—I've said from day one that we are a chain-agnostic project. I, I have a ton of respect for uh, Ethereum, and, and personally, I'm you know probably close to an Ethereum maxi. But um, in general, I don't think the project—the project the itself—should be credibly neutral. So we basically want to be on wherever there's demand for for what what the project has we we kind of want to be at least in in the long run so i mean obviously we're evm based so evm based chains are are the higher priority but even we wouldn't be opposed to porting to other environments depending on how the uh how much demand there was so i i think initially right we we are focused on ethereum and mainnet just because a number of reasons, but the biggest just thing, that's where the most activity is, especially in like the concentrated liquidity space. So uh, if our mission is to be where the demand is, we're we're going to start initially by focusing where the most demand lives. But uh, long term, we want to be across uh, multiple, multiple chains, wherever demand is. And, and then down the line, we've, you know, in, in the medium to long term, we've thought a lot about how to build markets where, What you typically see is where there are chains where there's demand for settlement, right? Like Ethereum, people want their tokens on mainnet because, you know, mainnet's more authoritative. uh, It's kind of the center of the market. So if I'm holding tokens, I prefer for them to be on mainnet. But that's not necessarily the same chain where people want to actually trade, where, right, like the best place for price discovery. And like typically, right, like cheaper, faster chains are better for price discovery because you can trade fast. Uh, The chain can keep up with like other markets or other chains or centralized. Exchanges, um, if it's cheap to trade, right? Arbitrage can bring the prices back in line. So we have thought a lot in the medium to long term about okay, how can we combine this where people want to settle on you know places like mainnet, which are which are great, right? I want my tokens on mainnet, but maybe I want to trade on a cheap, cheap, fast chain somewhere somewhere else where okay, I don't necessarily need that. So we've built kind of the protocol uh, to support kind of support this and we use this primitive called like virtualized tokens but but basically where you can put the tokens in one place and then not actually move the tokens but but have a market for those tokens somewhere somewhere else so almost like the same concept of okay like i deposited here and i'm gonna trade trade here and i i think something like that uh Long term is is very important for making DeFi markets fast and, and better and I, I, I am more efficient because I, I think the reality is mainnet is built for settlement and you are going to have L twos or other chains or side chains where uh, efficient very fast price price efficiency price discovery efficient fast and efficient price discovery uh, will be better suited to happen. Makes sense.
0: Would you say that operations at Crocswap have significantly changed since the bear market started? and has there been any restructuring of priorities or goals
1: I I'd, I'd say operations are uh you know we've we've been pretty heads down building focused uh luckily for for us we we have a fair bit of of runway um been fortunate that uh kind of like we haven't really had major cash crunch or had to do layoffs um so just have been lucky in terms of timing and and everything like that with with uh, funding and, and the team and everything so I, I think mostly the goal has been not letting the bear market distract us too much and right we're trying to just ship ship a product and you know the bear market will end at one point or another um so our goal is just make sure that the product's there and that it's awesome and that people get real use case out of it and then uh you know just the bull market's there, then or whether the bull market or just the bear market is there, right? It should be something that people get used out of.
0: I have one last question for you, Doug. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that companies in the space make during not so ideal market conditions? And what is some advice that you would give teams now, especially teams that are, you know, for whom it's their first bear market ever?
1: Yeah, I'd say the biggest mistake I guess a couple of the first thing is, I think a lot of projects are become overly dependent on um, kind of token dynamics that only work during bull markets. So a lot of things don't really have, um, like, like, what I would say is like, we're laser focused on product market fit. And then, you know, if if and when we, we do have a token, uh, that will be great. But the core thing is, right, this is a decentralized exchange, and, and people are getting real real use out of it and there we don't need token games on on top of that to, to kind of uh actually deliver a product that people are, are getting real use out of uh for a lot of projects particularly during bull markets it's very easy to design a product where kind of the or a project where the token or token games are the product itself right so it's uh the, the product is the token and then there's kind of all kinds of games to that make the token go up and down pump the token um those just right don't don't work in a bear market and then the problem is even if they work in a bull market and there's a bear market um and then there's another bull market uh, people move on to the next narrative so it's just it's you're not gonna come back somebody's gonna come up with something and kind of flip flip it around uh, I guess the other problem uh biggest mistake and, and even we've probably been kind of pitfalls to this is people in the height of the bull market just overestimate how long it's going to, I mean, nobody knows how long it's going to last, but they overestimate the chances that it will continue one, three, six months down the line. And like, even, even us, we were like kind of shocked how quickly things can turn. So I, I think you always have to kind of be prepared for like literally in a week, um, you know, conditions can change, especially, especially for startups and kind of the funding environment and everything like that can just change, change on the dime. So just kind of always be paranoid.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty solid advice.
1: Great. Well, thank you. I really had fun. This
0: was a great conversation. Yeah, Doug, we're we're so, so happy that you joined us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Bear Builders. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support Bear Builders, please share it with everyone you know and leave us a rating and review. To keep up on all things Flux, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Flux Protocol or visit our website at fluxprotocol.org. We'll see you next time.